0: Good hobby versus great hobby, and why photography is one of the best, Nat Geo's Pictures of the Year, $3 in photos, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 317 for February 19th, 2023. Good, Good hobby versus great hobby, and why photography is one of the best. What makes a great hobby? Most people don't have to ask themselves this. They just naturally gravitate to activities that they enjoy and make time for them. But I've had to think about this for years. It's an important question, particularly when your time is being pulled in multiple directions. We have so many options and cannot do everything. We must examine what we are doing and why we are doing it. What better time than in the season when our shiny New Year's resolutions are being put to their first test? I've pondered the hobby quality question for years and have concluded that almost anything can be a valid hobby. But to be a worthwhile pastime, there are a few criteria that separate the merely good from the truly great. Unsurprisingly, spoiler alert, photography is one of the all-time best hobbies. First, a definition. Hobbies or pastimes are activities we generally do in our free time, usually a fun or satisfying or enjoyable thing done outside of work. Many hobbies tend to be expensive in financial cost or time cost. Just consider some of the top-ranked examples in North America. I'm also happy to note that photography or videography pairs nicely with a number of them. Number one, outdoor activities. Number two, video, board, or card games. Three, reading. Four, cooking. Five, sports. Six, music. Seven, arts and crafts. Eight, pets and animals. Nine, travel. And ten, gardening. There can also be matters of tension in this leisurely part of our lives. For better or for worse, hobbies can become something you associate with your very identity. Perhaps most counterintuitively of all, some hobbies can evolve into our very careers, perhaps then ceasing to technically be a hobby at all. It goes without saying that we enjoy hobbies, but not all hobbies are equal. They all take something out of you, but some will give back even more. There are four facts, uh, facets, excuse me, that are I argue will elevate a hobby into greatness. And while not all are required, the more these elements are at play, the better. Number one is limitless creativity. A great hobby should allow some degree of human creativity, some way for you to express yourself uniquely. To put your own spin on the craft. Your perspectives, tastes, and ideas are made up from a lifetime of disparate experiences that allow you to make connections in a way that is entirely unique to you. How does your hobby let you express that? This creative expression could take the form of sharing an idea or in the decisions you make even when making an unpredictable play in a sport is a form of human creativity. To foster limitless creativity is to allow one to grow in their imagination, voice, and creative vision every day, enabling the hobbyist to grow in their craft over an entire lifetime. I can't think of a single activity that is quickly mastered and holds any value. Rather, it is the achievement that is difficult and that that holds lasting worth. It is the skills cultivated over years, often earned through great costs of time, pain, and money, that bring the deepest satisfaction. The greatest hobbies will involve creation, not mindless entertainment. Mindful crafting, not mindless consumption. I share this principle first, since it is the most convicting and clarifying for me. I think of the created thing as, quote, the fruits of the hobby, the result of the creativity that is often shared and enjoyed further later on. Two, limitless technical. The technical and creative can sound like they exist in mutually exclusive tension, but are tightly related. Technical skill, knowledge, and technique are also hard-won trophies earned through hands-on experience and obsessive study of a discipline. Malcolm Gladwell's famous 10,000 hours to expertise applies here. For the woodworker, this will include an understanding of the medium, for example, what will a certain type of wood with specific humidity or other environmental considerations. Additionally, there are many tools to understand and the pros and cons of using each in circumstances where multiple options could be considered. A lifetime would not be long enough to truly know all there is to know about this craft. There is an unlimited room for technical understanding here. Some of the technical skills can be learned through reading, hearing, or watching, but most will be earned through countless consistent and relentless hours of disciplined practice. Analyzing every minute detail. Gleaning insight from the technique of peers and lawed experts in the field, joyfully grinding away at some nuance for the sake of the very act itself. You are on the path to a great hobby when the tireless honing of the technical aspects of the hobby become one of the reasons you love it, and not just the cost of entry. Some hobbies are more technical than others, but it's the creative application of the technical where the magic happens. Three, good gear. The hobby should be done with the proper tools of the trade. Like you, I suspect, I try not to be a gearhead, but photography nerds like us are notoriously susceptible to gas or gear acquisition syndrome. There is something to be said about the delight of using the right tool for the job to allow the hobby to be expressed and performed with the artist's intent. When one is bringing a technical hobby to life with creative expression, inevitably some equipment will be involved. The trick is to keep this as the means gear should not become the point or hobby itself. I suppose I'm drawing the distinction here that being a collector doesn't seem as right for great creative expression as many other hobbies. Your mileage may vary. Collecting as a hobby seems to be more about heritage and family history. Some photos are impossible without a macro lens. The guitar player may need a certain pedal or guitar to express the creative idea that the technical progression requires in a song. Even some of the most sparsely equipped athletes can gush passionately for hours about a particular type of shoe. We consider gear through categories of the creative and technical. Some good gear can help us achieve goals and understanding this is one application of the limitlessly technical skill we develop. You'll notice this principle isn't labeled as limitless gear. The trick is to hold balance in the tension of being able to hone your hobby with the optimal creative expression and technical skill with the right tools within our limits and without going overboard. Hobbies are expensive. So manufacturers are there to sell. The upper limit on camera pricing seems to be about $10 billion if the James Webb Telescope is any indication. Artists thrive with constraints. The knack is to know when more gear is needed. I often remind myself that in many hobbies, I am using gear so much better than what would have been considered professional grade just a generation or two ago. Number four, shared experiences. We are social creatures. While many hobbies can be enjoyed alone, most things in life are best when shared with others. This may mean participating in the hobby itself with others, or perhaps the fruit of the hobby can be shared, maybe both. I argue that a great hobby should be enjoyable in various social formats with aspects that are enhanced by lone focus and others enhanced by group dynamics. For example, one could play guitar and sing alone. There are times when that experience would be richer with a band or an audience. The fruits of this hobby may be the song, a recording shared with friends to be listened to, or even learned and played with the next artist's own unique creative touch added. The cycle continues. As photographers we can share the experience of shooting by photographing our friends or photographing with them. Sharing the fruit can be such an intimate moment too. Re-experiencing a memory together through a photograph is really what it's all about for me. Side effects. Most hobbies will be done for their own sake, for the fun, satisfaction, or sheer delight of the activity. The greatest of these hobbies will be at their best in the company of friends while majoring and facilitating us with limitless growth opportunities in the technical and creative, and minoring and giving us some creative and technical tools to learn about along the way. By virtue of the four principles I outlined above, there will be one massive outcome that must also be mentioned and recognized. The hobby, or more accurately, the skills, friends, and fruits made along the way, will make us better people. Health, coordination, happiness, satisfaction, the craft of the hobby ought to make its participants measurably better as they are stretched in skills, perspectives, or even just the simple virtue of patience. So why is photography great? At the creative level, there are so many ways to show your perspective and tell a story eliciting emotion from the viewer. The classic photographic exercise of shooting a subject from a dozen angles using varied techniques shows us that just the way we present our subjects can be approached with a wide array of creative ideas. At a technical level, there can be a lifetime's work to understanding the ways light works, composition, and the amazing effects of wrestling the elements of the exposure triangle To their extremes, not to mention the wide array of classic and modern tools built into our cameras and lenses these days. Photography is a great hobby to explore alone, and new possibilities appear with others, be they fellow photographers, hikers, or even the subject of our photos. The fruits of this hobby are the photograph itself, as it sits framed on the wall or as the wallpaper of a device. Photos are not only easy to share, but in their own way have become one of the most common currencies in our online social communities, like share and remix. My camera helps me to see the world around me more clearly. Even when I don't have it with me, it helps me recognize the beauty we are surrounded by. Yes, this can at times also be quite a costly hobby, but the memories I have captured of my loved ones are simply priceless. Conclusion, but never finished. Career experts say that all workers crave mastery, autonomy, and purpose in their work. We want expertise in what we do, freedom to do it when and how we like, and for the work itself to matter. Do the hobbies you spend your time on also meet these criteria? Are you growing in your creative expression and technical understanding? Becoming more expert with the tools of your craft? And are you able to share the experience itself or the fruits of the hobby with the people in your life or in a community of like minded individuals? The best thing about great hobbies is the growth that they nurture us in. Perhaps, like me, you've spent years doing photography with the camera set to auto. With the flick of a switch, you'll start growing in the technical skills that will evoke your creativity in a way that you will be delighted to share. It may also make you crave another lens or body. It's all part of the cycle. I will close on this. I may be entirely and completely wrong. My advice here is not a one-size-fits-all solution. You might not agree with my principles, nor the importance and order of them. But I hope the concept of creating your own framework, whatever it may be, will help you to rank the quality of your own pastimes. Because we can't do everything. The days are long, but the years are short. May the hobbies you spend your time on be rewarding, worthy, and truly great. Now this, of course, is an article from Petapixel. And I do, in many ways, agree with the author that photography is one of the greatest hobbies. But it's not my own, only personal hobby. I do photography both as a hobby and as a profession, but I have another major hobby that I haven't been as active in in the last couple of years and I need to get back into it, and that's amateur radio. But again, it's another hobby that's expensive and takes quite a bit of technical skill and experience. But it's another one that I can highly recommend. Just some food for thought. The winners of National Geographic's Picture of the Year Photo Contest. Last December, National Geographic shared its 2022 Pictures of the Year, and as part of that announced its first photo contest in years. All the photos are in, and the esteemed publication has selected the winners. After what the publication calls a rigorous vetting process that was concluded by a team of National Geographic editors, Carthlink, uh... So Dance of the Eagles was named the grand prize-winning photo. The software engineer turned hobbyist photographer captured a bald eagle battling for a prime spot on a tree in the Chukak Bald Eagle Preserve in Alaska. Quote, every year in November, hundreds of bald eagles gather at Chukak Bald Eagle Preserve near Haines, Alaska, to feast on salmon. I visited there last two Novembers to photograph them, Subramarium Subramarium says. Quote, studying their behaviors, patterns helped me anticipate some of their actions. For example, when an eagle drags salmon to a dry spot, other eagles in the area would inevitably fly there to claim their share. That leads to chaotic action. They also seem to have some favorite spots to hang out, and usually commotion ensues, when an eagle wants an already occupied spot. This photo was taken during such commotion. Sobramian's photo will be featured in the May issue of National Geographic magazine alongside the publication's leading photographers and will also get a six-month digital subscription to the magazine. Nine other photos captured by Alex Berger, Ann Lee, Bruce Taubert, Eric Estrelle, Rez Solano, Riten Daria, Kafan Koskin, Timir Timir Trichkov, and W. Kent Williamson were selected as honorable mentions. Seven of which can be seen below. All will be featured on National Geographic's Your Shot Instagram page, and will also receive a six-month digital subscription to the magazine. And you can see these images in this this article in the show notes. They're absolutely. Amazing, beautiful images. Some of the best I've ever seen as far as wildlife and that goes. To see the full gallery of win- winners, visit natgeo.com slash winner. Huge collection of Robert Frank's photos valued at nearly $3 million. Sotheby's is presenting on the road photog- uh, photographs by Robert Frank from the collection of Arthur Penn on exhibition in New York ahead of a live auction on February 22nd at 2 p.m. Sotheby's says it's the world's most expansive private collection of Robert Frank's photographs, and the collection includes images across several decades of the late photographer's storied career. The pen collection includes 109 lots that demonstrate Robert Frank's expertise as a documentary documentary photographer, some of which are expected to sell at auction for as much as $180,000. Frank was born in Switzerland in 1924. Beginning in 1941, he studied photography and spent six years working for commercial photography and graphic design studios in Switzerland. Frank left for the United States in 1947 and worked as a fashion photographer at Harper's Bazaar. Frustrated by the limitations of fashion photography, Frank lasted there for just a few months. He moved to freelance photography work, including photojournalism and advertising projects for major publications such as Life, Look, Charm, and Vogue. While doing commercial photography work, Frank also did street photography independently. This personal documentary work resulted in Frank applying for the Guggenheim Fellowship. Winning the fellowship allowed Frank to travel throughout the U.S., capturing images that would be the backbone of Frank's iconic book, The Americans. Frank then turned his attention toward motion pictures. Frank continued to dabble in photographic projects, including the photo series from The Bus, and especially cinematic and important photo series. All eight images from that series captured in 1958 are available in the upcoming auction, Lots 18 through 25. The series is noteworthy for many reasons, including that Frank limited himself to capturing the images in the series from the windows of a New York City bus. The series delivers freeze frames from the hustle and bustle of life in New York City in the late 1950s. Alongside Frank's ever-evolving photographic style and increasing emphasis on filmmaking, Frank also had a fluid printing style. Many images in From the Bus are printed on paper that Frank briefly exposed to light before placing the negative in the enlarger, resulting in gray margins reminiscent of a camera's viewfinder. Frank dedicated his From the Bus series to the people who walk and dream on the streets of New York. Frank returned to still photography in the 1970s, publishing his second photography book, The Lines of My Hand, in 1972. The book includes mostly personal autobiographical biographical photos and collages. Amid many changes in his personal life, including a new marriage to sculptor June Leaf, Frank moved to Nova Scotia. Frank lost his daughter Andrea to a plane crash in 1974. His son Pablo suffered from mental illness and died in 1994. In 1995, Frank founded the Andrea Frank foundation in his daughter's memory to provide grants to artists. Robert Frank died age 94 at his home in Nova Scotia in 2019. And there are some beautiful images of of his in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself. Some absolutely stunning work. Robert Frank's career was eclectic illustrious and vibrant. Sotheby's has published an in-depth overview of images in the auction which you can find at this at the link in this article in the show notes including details on when photos were captured relevant background information provenance and the estimated hammer price so if you want to get a hold of some of this Robert Frank work in this auction you better be ready to bust out your wallet because I doubt any of it's going to go cheap a guide to third-party Chinese lens brands. Lenses are big business. While we have seen the value of camera equipment nosedive year on year, lens value has slowly increased and is now equal to about a third of the camera market. It's for this reason that third-party manufacturers have increased their stake in this market, and particularly at the low-cost end where Chinese manufacturers proliferate. Who are these companies and what does their appearance mean? Uh, presage in terms of the camera market as a whole. You've heard the name, seen the lenses, and googled at the the astonishingly low prices, at least low compared to their original equipment equivalents. So who are the pretenders to the throne vying for the hard-earned cash that will allow you to flesh out that bare camera gear? Cupboard? Before we get to that point, let's take stock as to why we are seeing new manufacturers popping up on what seems like an almost annual basis. Third-party lenses are nothing new. It's worth pointing out that third-party manufacturers are not a new phenomenon and date back to the birth of photography. In fact, many of the main camera manufacturers of today started out producing lenses before moving on to cameras and systems. For example, every photographer of a certain age will have a Vivitar lens, and you will see them lining the shelves of secondhand stores. These were well made lenses with good or good enough specs for considerably less money than their Canon or Nikon equivalents, back during a time when anything and everything to do with cameras cost a lot of money. Of course, to produce a third party lens, it needed to target an interchangeable lens camera and ILC system. And during the early 2000s, this took a backseat to the vast compact camera market. DSLRs were still important, but lens sales formed a relatively small part of the overall whole. The demise of the compact camera and the gradual increase in lens sales has allowed them to take on increased significance and attract interest from third parties. Nikon's pre-COVID estimate of the market was 17 million units, which doesn't quite square up with SEPA's 14 million ship units. The discrepancy is a result of SEPA's reporting, which only counts production from its German and Japanese members and suggests that other, principally Asian manufacturers, make up about 20% of the market and likely increasing. Samyang paved the way. First, we should note the contribution of Samyang, which is perhaps the most well-known Asian manufacturer. But it's a Korean company and not a Chinese one. Samyang helped pave the way for other Asian third-party lens brands because the manufacturers noted below are trying to mimic its success. Founded in 1972, Samyang has a long history of producing optical components although the production of low-cost lenses is much more recent offering. The starting point for all third-party manufacturing is low-cost, low-risk entry into the market. The simplest way to achieve this is to begin manufacturing manual focus primes with simple optical formulas. IP-free designs are readily available, requiring rev- relatively simple production and assembly. By selling at low prices in large volumes, there is an opportunity to gain sustainable market share. Samyang began this journey in 2008 with the release of the 85mm f1.4 for DSLRs and has garnered a reputation for good optical results across a range of slightly more esoteric products, particularly at short focal lengths. Its lenses have appeared under a range of different brand names, including Rokinon, Vivitar, Quantaray, Bauer, Optica, and Phoenix. Chinese manufacturers on the up. So who makes up the new wave of Chinese manufacturers? Let's look at some of the more prominent names you'll see making waves in photography today. Zongji Optics, founded in 1984, mounts Canon EF, Canon M, Canon RF, Nikon F, Nikon Z, Sony E, Fujifilm G, Micro Four Thirds, Availability, shop mitocon lenses. Zongyi Optics, also known as ZY Optics and officially Shenyang Zongyi Optical and Electrical or Electronic Company Limited, was founded in 1984 as a joint venture from a Japanese investor providing startup capital. The company has since grown to become a leading third-party lens manufacturer based in Shenyang, China, which is about 60 miles west of North Korea. The company sells products under both the Zong brand as well as the better-known Mitocon brand. The Mitocon bar- brand includes the Speedmaster line that was launched in 2014, which consists of relatively affordable fast prime lenses with large maximum apertures for a wide range of camera mounts, including Canon, Nikon, Sony, and Fujifilm. The Speedmaster line allows everyone from beginners to hobbyists to try higher-end spec but at an affordable price, the company says, quote, we are passionate to make every photo truly memorable and unique. Viltrox, founded in 2009. Mounts, Canon EFM, Sony E, Leica L, Micro Four Thirds, Fujifilm X, Nikon Z. Availability, shop Viltrox lenses. Viltrox is one of the new kids on the block, making optical accessories since 2009. In addition to lenses, this has included lights and video monitors. Based in Shenzhen, People's Republic of China, lenses were a later addition, likely due to the specialist nature of sourcing the optical components. Their initial foray was actually in the design of mount adapters and teleconverters, with lenses a natural progression from this. This early technical expertise has actually held it in good stead because it has made the development of AF lenses easier. Like Samyang, initial products were manual focus lenses. However, they very quickly produced their first AF lens, the 85 mm F1.8 X mount, which was competitively priced and well-received. Viltrox is able to leverage low manufacturing costs and has found success in designing for the APS-C mirrorless system of both Fuji and Sony, which encouraged third-party manufacturers, and this allows the use of the same lens design across different mounts. As sales have ramped up and they have managed to maintain good quality manufacturing, their sites have moved up to autofocus lenses and full-frame designs for Sony, Nikon, and Canon systems. This is where the volume in sales is increasingly shifting, but IP constraints of new mount designs, and in particular, electronic communication, has hampered initial growth. For example, Petapixel reported that Canon had sent the uh, cease and desist to Viltrox for its RF mount lenses. And Viltrox's latest lens for the Fuji X mount is the Viltrox Pro AF75 F1.2, and it's priced at $549, which is quite amazing. And from what I've been hearing, it's a quite impressive lens. Miike. Founded in 1997. Mounts, Canon M, Canon RF, Canon EF, Nikon F, Nikon Z, Sony E, Fujifilm X, Leica L, Micro Four Thirds. Availability, shop, Mike lenses. Mikay is a not too dissimilar brand from Viltrox, having started producing its own brand camera products around 2007, although its roots as a business date back to 1997. That said, it had a nascent lens division that didn't really make a notable appearance until around 2017, and it's possible that the intervening period was marked by low-volume unbranded direct-to-customer sales. However, it was the 2018 appearance of its micro four-thirds cinema lenses, remarkably similar to Kickstarter-funded Vedra, that led to speculation they were copied before Vedra eventually folded. It is certainly unusual to begin lens production with micro four-thirds cinema lenses, although there is now a wide range of MF lenses in all the principal mounts, targeting short vocal lengths, there is one AF lens, an 85mm E, EF, and Z mounts, although in this regard, it is lagging behind Viltrox significantly. Lawa, founded in 2013, mounts, Canon EF, Canon RF, Canon M, Nikon F, Nikon Z, Sony A, Sony E, Leica M, Leica L, Pentax K, Fujifilm X, Fujifilm GFX, and Micro Four Thirds. Availability, shop Lawa lenses. Lowa is the brand name of Chinese manufacturer Venus Optics, headquartered in Hong Kong. Another recent startup, having begun operations in 2013, they claim their design team has worked for Japanese and German manufacturers and presumably has good knowledge of their lens designs. Venus Optics has trodden a similar path to Viltrox in that they have focused upon manual focus stills lenses, generally wider angle with simple but good quality optical designs. Using this approach, they have targeted a range of lens systems from micro four-thirds through APS-C to full frame. This approach, unlike Billtracks, has not included AF lenses, but instead seen them push the breadth of their expertise into cinema lenses like Mikkei and tilt shift lenses, as well as low distortion designs, zooms, and ultra-fast primes. This niche appears to have served it well as a global profile. Its global profile has risen, presumably on the back of increased sales. Yongnuo, founded in 2014, mounts Canon EF and Nikon F. Availability: Shop Yongnuo lenses. Moving on to a name familiar to any aspiring portrait photographer, Yongnuo. Beloved by many for their low-cost, big-pop-for-your-buck lighting, Yongnuo has become well-known for its strobes and triggers delivering a lighting system that can produce fantastic results at a fraction of the cost of brand names. Founded in 2006 and also hailing from Shenzhen, it has scored significant success with its lighting but hasn't garnered much of a reputation either way for its lenses or cameras. Starting in 2014, it attracted attention for producing a series of cheap, even alarmingly cheap lenses that were basically clones of well-known lenses such as the Canon 50mm f1.4. Young Nuo's cloning efforts initially focused on the EF and FDSLR mounts before expanding the E, RF, and Z mounts, although interestingly, not the Fuji X mount. Other manufacturers that have gained more prominence recently include Seven Artisans, Astrohori, and TT Artisan. But their products are new and haven't garnered the same exposure as those mentioned above. And like some of the names above, there is an eclectic mix of lens types listed on their sites at a range of prices. Seven Artisans, founded in 2015, Mounts, Canon M, Canon R, Canon EF, Nikon Z, Sony E, Leica M, Leica L, micro four-thirds. Availability shop, 7 Artisans lenses. 7 Artisans, founded in 2015, goes for a broader range of mount support. Again, wide-angle, fast, and cinema lenses, all at notably very low prices. TT Artisans. Founded in 2019, mounts Canon M, Canon RF, Nikon Z, Sony E, Leica M, Leica L, Fujifilm X, Fujifilm G, Hasselblad, XCD, and Micro Four Thirds. Availability shop TT Artisan's lenses. TT Artisan was founded in 2019, and it makes a range of Leica M full-frame lenses, along with mount adapters, as well as a number of APS-C mount lenses and two AF lenses. These tend to be a mix of wide-angle, fast, or esoteric designs. While the names T.T. Artisan and Seven Artisan may suggest a relationship between the two companies, the link is in their history only. Photo Bargain writes that T.T. T. Artisan was founded by one of the co-founders of Seven Artisans who decided to split off and form a rival brand, perhaps similar to the Dazzler Brothers feud and the creation of Adidas and Puma. After TT Artisans was launched, 7Artisans posted a notice on its website to make sure its customers wouldn't be confused by the new company. Astrohori, founded in 2018, mounts Canon M, Canon RF, Nikon Z, Sony E, Leica L, Fujifilm X, and Fujifilm G. Availability, shop Astrohori lenses. Astrohori, founded in 2018, likewise, threads a multi-mount path, but also includes Fujifilm's medium format GFX among its offerings. AF models are scarce, although the 85mm f1.8 recently arrived. Now, the pros and cons of third-party lenses. Third-party Chinese and Asian camera lenses have become a popular way for photographers to obtain certain specs and features that would be otherwise out of reach with pricier products by big-name brands. Here are some pros and cons of choosing third-party Chinese lenses over one by a more prominent lens brand. Pros, affordable. Third-party Chinese lenses are often significantly more affordable than lenses for major camera makers. For example, the Mitocon Zongyi Speedmaster 90mm f1.5 for the Canon RF costs $650, while the Canon RF 85 mm f1.2L costs $2,500 significant difference. Both lenses can capture portraits with a shallow depth of field and beautiful bokeh. While the Mitocon Speedmaster does have the downside of lacking autofocus, photographers who are primarily looking for an ultra-fast portrait lens may be willing to make that trade-off for a Mitocon lens that's about one-fourth the price of a Canon lens. Innovation, third-party lens makers often try new things like producing niche lenses or lenses with unique features that are not found in major brand lenses. One example is the Laowa 24mm f14 two-times macro probe lens that Venus Optics announced in 2018. It's an unusual lens not offered by any mainstream camera brand that opened the door to all kinds of creative shots. And there's an accompanying YouTube video in this article in the show notes on that lens that you can check out for yourself. And I'm going to take a break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191, and you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at com, and you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Quality. Some third-party Chinese lens makers are known for producing high-quality lenses that can rival those made by major camera manufacturers. Compatibility. Third-party lens manufacturers produce lenses for a wide range of camera brands and models, providing photographers with more options to choose from. But now for the cons. Quality control. Smaller lens manufacturers may have lower quality control standards than larger brands. There may be more quality variation between copies, focusing problems, compatibility shortcomings, and more build or image quality issues, especially when purchasing very affordable third-party lenses. Customer support. Third-party Chinese lens makers may not have the same level of customer support as major camera manufacturers, which could make it difficult to get repairs or support if the photographer runs into defects or problems. Longevity. Products created by third-party manufacturers, particularly lenses, considered to be very cheap, may not be as durable over the long run as mainstream products. It is often said that you get what you pay for, and what you save in your pocketbook may pay for in, you may pay for in reliability. Just as off-brand clothing may fall apart more quickly than quality garments, you may need to lower your expectations for how long the third-party lens will be able to serve you. Resale Value Third-party Chinese lenses may not retain their value as well as lenses from major camera manufacturers, which could make it more difficult to sell them later if needed. And if you do manage to find a buyer, you may, not, or you may only be able to recover a fraction of the amount that a big brand lens can resell for. Overall, third-party Chinese lenses can be a great option for photographers on a budget or those looking for unique features out of the reach of their budgets. However, it is important to carefully weigh both the pros and cons before clicking that buy button. The Future of Third-Party Manufacturers What's notable from this brief tour through some of the manufacturing names that regularly appear in the photography press is that they are all recent additions, hailing from the tech hotbed that is Shenzhen, China. In the current market, anything before 2010 is positively ancient, but this raises the obvious question as to why there is so much going on. This is undoubtedly a coalescence of factors that relate to the opening up in terms of business of China as part of the chain of global supply products, and particularly from 2000 onwards, the increasing manufacturer of tech goods. This has con- coincided with the boom in digital camera smartphone production that has simply up.tooled the capacity and capability of Chinese production lines and their staff. The global expansion of the camera market occurred at the same time, but the proliferation of manufacturing from 2015 onwards has coincided with a contraction of this market. Nevertheless, there is plenty of scope for targeting the low-cost end of the market where own-brand manufacturers are costly. It has remained a largely nascent sector as the likes of Tamron and Sigma have targeted the pricier own brand end of the market in an effort to attract greater margins. The gap between SEPA reported shipment data and the size of the wider market suggests that there's a significant portion of sales that could move to Chinese manufacturers who have the right products at the right price. This highlights one key factor. There are ongoing number of new camera systems, many with limited budget options available. In fact, if you look at RF and Z mount lenses, then there are just a limited lenses available. When you add in Fuji X, Fuji GFX, Sony E, APS-C, and full-frame, Leica L, and Micro Four Thirds, the scope for expanding the sales of budget lenses into these systems is large, particularly if you can use the same design across multiple systems as Viltrox has shown, with its Fuji and Sony offerings. Manual-focused designs were an obvious place to start, but the majority of customers will be looking for AF models, and this is a key area new manufacturers can differentiate themselves. If they can use sharp optical designs with good AF, then they should have a winning formula. Again, it has to be at the right price. And talking of price, you only have to search on eBay for new MF lenses to see the number of direct sellers shipping at low prices it's really a buyer's market with one large caveat is the lens you are looking at as good i remember being sent a brand new 50 millimeter manual focus lens for testing it certainly looked the part except when i shot with it on the camera it had horrible refraction that reduced contrast across the frame through a wide range of angles not only that but for many of these frames a hot spot appeared in the center it was a truly horrible design The key for up-and-coming manufacturers is not only to have the right lens at the right price, but to develop trust with customers in order to build the brand. Perhaps the best proponent of this so far has been Viltrox, which has been particularly forthcoming in sending samples to photographer magazines, websites, and bloggers for testing. It is upfront with its products and lets them speak for themselves. This creates volume in terms of column inches spent discussing their products although again choose your review with care not all reviewers are created equal notwithstanding the above caution this is an exciting time for photographers we have a plethora of mirrorless system offerings remarkable features with own brand manufacturers taking advantage of the situation to build out enticing lens ranges into this mix throw some increasingly good, if not great, budget lenses from new Chinese manufacturers, and the scene is set for an interesting few years ahead. And I do have to agree 100%. I remember just a couple of years ago, Viltrox sent me their adapter for EF to RF mount lenses, and it was a fully automated adapter, just like the ones offered by Canon. And when I tested it, I did a review on it on my YouTube channel that you can check out for yourself. The quality, as far as performance, was ever good as good as the Canon for a fraction of the price, and I do have, I think, currently three Viltrox lenses for a Fujifilm X mount. Now, for me. Um, I'm not bashing Biltrox. They do seem to make really good lenses. They are one of the better third-party manufacturers that's really been up and coming. But one of the reasons why I have bought a few of their lenses for the X-mount is I tend to buy third-party lenses that are of decent quality for focal lengths that I'm not going to use all the time. Being I don't do a lot of portrait photography, that's not my genre of choice. When I do buy a portrait lens, I generally buy a third-party lens. I've had the name brand ones when I shot Canon. I've had the 85 1.2 and the 50 millimeter 1.2 and the 135 F2. Uh, but being that I didn't use them a whole lot, it was kind of a waste of money. So now that I've switched to Fujifilm, I've decided that for those focal lengths, Viltrox is more than good enough. And I do get really good results for them. So I'm not complaining. Is the failure of the Zeiss ZX-1 the death of the Android camera? The Zeiss ZX-1 promised intuitive photography that mixed a standalone camera with smartphone software. But now that it's marked as discontinued, is this finally the end of the Android camera? The Zeiss ZX-1 was designed purposefully as a concept piece from a top-shelf manufacturer that would clearly spell out the future direction for the industry. To understand where Zeiss was coming from is to understand the position that the industry had increasingly found itself in as a result of the success of the smartphone. The smartphone was able to leverage several key elements that successfully pitted it against the compact camera of the early 2000s. Firstly, it was a multifunction device, no need for a phone, MP3 player, or a camera, which reduced size, weight, and cost. Secondly, it incorporated internet access, which facilitated photo sharing. This was a critical element because it drew strongly upon our social competitiveness, and there is nothing more powerful than a photo to show where I am, who I am with, and what I'm doing. Gone were the days of finishing a film and sending it off to a lab or hooking a CF card up to a PC. The biggest drawback was, of course, the paltry image quality of smartphone cameras. At best, they could hide their deficiencies, at worst, lay them bare. You used a proper camera for proper photos. It was actually a third element that has been a game changer for smartphones, and that is computational photography. It's worth stating that computational photography was already a thing by dint of the fact that Adobe Photoshop had long been used by photographers for post-production. Where it mattered was real-time computational processing, and it's likely that Pro HDR for the iPhone 3 was one of the apps to achieve this. Now you could get in-phone HDR images, but that was just the start. What manufacturers knew was that smartphones wouldn't be used to produce A3 wall uh, wall prints, but rather low resolution social media posts that had to look good on a small screen. Multi-shot mode could produce HDR, remove noise, shoot at night, stitch panoramas, or simulate bokeh, particularly at low resolutions where image alignment wasn't an issue. What the leading smartphones did was push into territory that required specialist camera equipment and processing, and so begged the following question. Why weren't mainstream camera manufacturers already in this space? The short answer is that they were, but in a limited way. For example, Nikon uses Active D lighting contrast optimization, Fujifilm has an in-camera RAW processor, and Sony can generate panoramas. The problem didn't lie with the camera's capabilities, the manufacturer's technical competence, or the algorithms themselves, but rather with the platform that they inhibited or inhabited the camera firmware. Your camera software is a host or a hostage to fortune of its past in, incarnations that have their roots in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. When I picked up a second-hand film Nikon F100, it felt exactly like a DSLR without the LCD screen, as all the electronic components behaved in exactly the same way, which is what you would expect when you have the same core firmware. The cameras of today have their roots in the firmware of the past. This is understandable because manufacturers have to write the control system software for their fly-by-wire systems, which were subsequently modified in the digital world to handle the capture and storage of image data. As camera iterations progress, so the richness, functionality, and complexity of these software systems increase. However, they remain proprietary and locked down, meaning that you get what the manufacturer wants you to have. In contrast, smartphones are general computing platforms, meaning anyone can write software utilizing interfaces to existing hardware, which, of course, gave birth to photography apps and their post-production workflows. If we were to be critical of camera manufacturers, then it would be that software has never been a top priority for them. Nikon has historically been poor at releasing firmware updates, taking many iterations to introduce features where it lagged behind others although its approach with the Z system has been refreshingly forthcoming. Fujifilm, on the other hand, has a reputation for regular updates, bug fixes, and introduce new features. And it's what users expect in an era of regular app updates on smartphones. Given all the above, it's not surprising that manufacturers began to experiment with incorporating Android control systems into their devices, and the first to launch was probably the Nikon Coolpix S800C, released in 2012. The compact camera form factor, clearly an experiment designed to appeal to the masses, sported Android 2.3, gingerbread for those with good memories, and incorporated a Type 1-slash-2.3 sensor and a 3.5-inch screen. Its implementation of Android ran email, browser, and social media apps, amongst others. However, it failed to set the camera world alight, probably because it offered neither a good camera nor a good smart device. In short, it wasn't the solution that consumers were after. This is in contrast to Samsung's offerings, which were more committed to the idea of a smart camera. The Samsung Galaxy Camera and the Galaxy Camera 2 and Galaxy S4 Zoom were a camera with smartphone elements and a smartphone with camera elements. However, it was the Samsung Galaxy Camera NX that delivered in 2013 on this promise to prosumers that was really rather good, although had a hefty $1,600 price tag. A genuine mirrorless camera that used Android 4.2.2 Jelly Bean and featured a 20 megapixel APS-C sensor that allowed you to organize, edit, and share your images but it was discontinued in 2017. Into the fray came Zeiss, 2018 announcement of the X, or the ZX-1, which we must assume was already in development prior to Samsung's withdrawal from the market. Zeiss decided to go full bore and outsmart Samsung's smart camera with a full frame model, 37 megapixel fixed lens design, manufactured to the highest standards. However, it set a vaporware mark Uh, marker in the sand for the length of time between announcements and delivery reaching market at the end of 2020, although not readily available until 2021. And there is an accompanying YouTube video from Zeiss that you can see in this article in the show notes. A short two years later, perhaps not helped by COVID, the ZX1 has bitten the dust with Zeiss having a hard lesson in the economics of camera development, perhaps also hampered by the $6,000 list price, one suspects there will not be a ZX2. Given that very few companies have seriously entered the Android camera market, what are the key takeaways that Zeiss and the market as a whole can learn? Firstly, match your product to your consumer. Will the sort of person that buys a $6,000 full-frame fixed-line camera want it to be an Android smartphone, or will they prefer a stripped-back, bare-metal analog dial-laden throwback to the 1960s that incorporates a high-res sensor and the best optics? Leica, Leica clearly knows its market. Secondly, plan the lifespan of your device carefully. Most consumers will expect it to last longer than their smartphone and won't tolerate operating systems or apps stopping working uh, working simply because they're a few years old, which probably means you need to own your platform. Thirdly, connecting anything to the internet is risky, so addressing security is critical. Fourthly, your value proposition for a smart camera must be strong, which means getting the ergonomics and deliverables right, something smartphone manufacturers have nailed. Early iterations of the smart camera didn't use Android as a computational platform, but a social media platform, which isn't necessarily leveraging the smart camera's greatest strengths. In short, the ZX-1 failed because of a mismatch between consumer and brand, the implementation, and its unfathomable cost. What the camera industry actually needs is the bravery to approach redesigning camera firmware from the ground up, integrating a touchscreen effectively and making image sharing slick all within a platform that opens up image processing on camera to third-party algorithms. If manufacturers looking at Sony, Nikon, and Canon could agree on an open standard for plug-in design, then everyone would win. Unfortunately, in the rush to bring out their new mirrorless systems, Nikon and Canon have understandably taken their existing firmware and built upon it. This is simply not good enough. We are at a crossroads in imaging technology. And manufacturers need to address the significant deficiencies inherent in how the industry appeals to consumers in order to roll back the increasing irrelevance to mainstream society. Zeiss, at least, had the courage to design something from scratch. However, its approach was flawed and ultimately failed. Maybe it's time for manufacturers to work together. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I was never a fan of an Android camera as a general rule. I do have two of the Lytra Illum cameras. Um, and that model has been discontinued. Now it was a smart camera that ran Android. I have one of the prototypes and then I have one of the production models. And I do like to play with them from time to time. But they're definitely not setting the world on fire. And that's why they're no longer in business as far as the camera maker is concerned. <laughs> The PAN's memory card station is a modular photo offloading tool. The PAN's workflow station is a card reader hub device that allows photographers to upload multiple memory cards at once, and it does so for notably cheaper than other options. Professional photographers and videographers often have to deal with multiple memory cards full of data, and offloading them one by one is a tedious and time-consuming process. That's where memory card workstations come into play. The PAN's Workflow Station by Pergear comes in significantly more affordable than the competition. For a long time, Lexar made the best version of this type of tool available, but that's no longer available, and there aren't very many options available since the advent of USB-C. SanDisk's ProDoc 4 is the closest high-end successor to what Lexar made, but it costs $500. And that's before adding up to four modular readers that start at $80 apiece, but it can be as little as $200 each. Pergear is filling out the options a bit more with its $350 PANS workflow station, a price that includes four modular readers. The PANS memory card station is likely able to cut down on price because it's smaller, simpler, and doesn't use Thunderbolt connections. Instead, it relies on USB 3.2 Gen 2, 10 gigabits per second, where Pergear says, which Pergear says allows one gigabit of files to be transferred in less than two seconds and measures at a speed of 680 megabits per second. Megabits for you, Sharky. (laughs) That speed is way beyond any SD or micro SD card and is high enough to dump from CF Express at a fast pace as well. Basically, for most users, the bottleneck won't be the reader, but the memory card. Like all workstation hubs, the PAN station allows all four slots to be used at the same time and can be mixed and matched depending on need. The company makes four different modular inserts for the main base station, a dual microSD module, a USB-only model, Module, a dual SD card module, and a single CF Express type B module. The micro SD and USB modules can be purchased individually for $50, while the SD module costs 60 and the CF Express module costs 70. The hub can be purchased empty, which means users would have to buy the modules independently, but it does allow them to pick the ones they want, or with one of each of the four modules. And another with all but CF Express module. Just like with other workflow stations, each of the modules can function on its own in addition to working inside the main hub unit. The aluminum build and overall design is very similar to the Kingston workflow station, as are the performance promises, although Kingston doesn't offer a CF Express reader, which for many makes it a non starter. Because it isn't Thunderbolt, the amount of total bandwidth the USB-C can handle is capped, so offload speeds are likely less than what could be achieved with the SanDisk ProDoc 4. But since the PANs cost less fully loaded than the SanDisk does without any modules, many might find that to be a perfectly acceptable trade-off. It's also compatible with mobile devices, Macs, and PCs. The PANs Workflow Station Professional Card Reader Hub can be purchased directly from per Gear. And this is interesting. I might have to check this out for myself because I do have a plethora of cameras, both micro SD and SD, and it might be handy to have this uh, workflow station professional card reader hub. Might come in handy. Now, the one thing I will warn you about is when you buy from gear they generally offer free international shipping, but man, are they slow. I recently ordered a new 18 millimeter cap lens that I think is from either seven or TTR since I can't remember which one. And it's an 18 millimeter F63 cap lens that I wanted to get to compare to my current uh, fun leader cap lens, which is an F8. And this lens was fairly cheap. And it said 12 to 18 day shipping time because it's coming from China, of course. And I ordered mine like two weeks ago, and it still hasn't even shipped yet. So 12 to 18 days delivery time, my butt. (laughs) So keep that in mind when buying from Pergear. You might be better off trying to get it through Amazon. Although when I looked at getting this cap lens, I did look at Amazon and the delivery time was just a slow one there. So apparently they're still coming from China either way. And now we're going to head over to the rumor sites and see what they have for us this week first up from canon rumors pre-order the new canon gear you can now pre-order the two new cameras and two new lenses from canon all of the goodies are scheduled to ship sometime in the spring of 2023 the canon eos r50 pre-order options you can get the body black for 679 in u.s dollars 789 in euros um and or no i'm sorry 829 in euros and 789 in british pounds the Canon EOS R50 body, white, for the same prices. The Canon EOS R50 with RFS 18 to 45 f 4.5 to 6.3 ISSTM, STM, 799 US, 899 in British pounds, and 949 in Euros. The Canon EOS R50 with the RFS 18-45 F45-63 ISSTM plus the RFS 55-210 F5-71 ISSTM, $1,029 US, $1,099 in British pounds, and 1149 in Euros. The Canon EOS R eight pre order options, you can get the body only for fourteen ninety nine, sixteen ninety nine, or seventeen ninety nine, depending on your country. The Canon EOS R eight with the RF twenty four to fifty, F four five to six three ISSTM at sixteen ninety nine, eighteen ninety nine and nineteen ninety nine, depending on your country. New Canon lens pre order options the Canon RF 24 to 50, f 45 to 63 ISSTM is 299 US, 379, and 399. And the Canon RF S55 to 210, F5 to 71 ISSTM is 349, 429, or 449, depending on where you live in the world. And those are the latest pieces of gear to come out from Canon. Shemoud lenses, world's first, our remanufactured rear element for the Canon FD85 F1.2 L. Windsor, Ontario, February 7th, 2023. Shemoud lens has announced world first in the field of vintage lenses, remanufactured glass rear element for the legendary Canon FD85 millimeter F1.2 L. True to the ethos of Ron Sim, CSC, Simmons creator and owner, this is not a luxury for the select few, but instead an affordable solution that allows users to adapt their FD 85mm 1.2 lens for SIN style shooting with confidence. The popularity of Canon FD lenses has skyrocketed in recent years, and the famous FD 85 1.2L is one of the most sought after by DPs and creators. It is routinely used as a substitute for the rare and expensive Canon K35-85mm T1.3 because it shares the same optical design. The smooth bokeh, wafer thin depth of focus, and classic Canon rendering make the FD85-1.2L unique. So why remake a glass element for a lens that came out over 40 years ago and make it widely available? Simmons are famous for supplying superior grade conversion kits that modify high quality stills lenses into ones better designed for cinema shooting. Together with lens mount maker and original Canon FD to EF developer Ed Mika, they developed the FD to EF SIN conversion kits that are now the go to solution for vintage Canon lens shooters worldwide. Originally, the FD85 1.2L was not offered as a DIY conversion due to the difficulty in removing the rear element from its native housing. Cracking, chipping, or severely scratching the rear element during extraction was common, so Simmons required users to send their lenses to their office in Canada for professional modding to EF. Today, this service is no longer needed as users can now buy a DIY kit and follow the simple instructions themselves, safe in the knowledge that a replacement rear element is available at moderate cost should they damage the original. A complex technical challenge. Remanufacturing an element for a lens that already exists is difficult because there is zero tolerance for error, Uh, and the element must match a design over 40 years old, the Oops, excuse me here. The uh, old original formula and specification is not something you can easily obtain from Canon's archives. In addition, the FD85 1.2 rear element is a spherical, meaning that the curves of the surface are not a simple portion of a sphere, but instead a complex profile that makes it far harder to remanufacture. Simmons has used a combination of extremely complex manual glass shaping processes and modern measurement and, ma- and manufacturing methods to replicate the lens successfully, and there are accompanying YouTube videos that you can check out. Available in kit form, the FD to EF SYN conversion kit for the FD85 1.2 can be ordered with the replacement element as standard to ensure that the user is able to proceed immediately if the original is damaged or without if the user can afford to wait for replacement in the event of breakage. This replacement rear element can also be ordered separately by anyone whose original has been scratched or damaged in any way. The full simmond lens conversion. A full-simmoned lens conversion is comprised of an EF lens mount that replaces the existing FD1, a re-engineered Edmica dampened controlled Gear or DCG aperture ring, a simple fit follow focus gear, front SIN ring with the 80 or 85 millimeter outside diameter for mat box and accessory attachment, plus a SIN lens cap. The result feels great, is much more usable, and is ready for professional production. Conversion for other popular vintage lenses, lens makes are already available. There are a large variety of custom lens cabs, front sim rings, and follow focus gear options for a full Simmon conversion. A full Simmon conversion will ensure that vintage lenses like the 85, the FD85 1.2L have a useful life in the hands of DPs for many years to come, safeguarding their investment. Simmon was founded by award-winning cinematographer and vintage lens enthusiast Ron Sim, CSC. He originally worked on conversions in his spare time in between shoots. From small beginnings, Simmond has rapidly grown into the world's best known and most trusted Sin Lens modding company. In recent months, it has invested heavily in new R&D machinery and premises that allow for precision work at larger scale. The remanufactured rear element for the FD85 1.2L is the first development of many to be launched in the coming months. The Simmond FD to EF SYN conversion kit with brass Edmika lens mount for the Canon FD85 1.2L, including a remanufactured rear element plus JIS screwdriver, costs $330 US plus taxes and shipping. To see this and other innovative Simmond products, visit SimmondLens.com. And that's remarkable. I think it's truly truly amazing that this company is able to take these old vintage FD lenses and convert them to the EF mount for the cinematography world. I think that's absolutely fantastic and a good way to keep these old lenses from being simply discarded in landfills or ending up in pawn shops where they sit for ages because nobody wants to buy them and nobody knows what they are. And now on over to Nikon rumors released 492 DXO optics modules on One Photo Raw 2023.1. DXO released 492 new optics modules. There are now over 81,000 unique optics modules, and the performance of supported lenses and cameras can be boosted by processing RAW files with DXO software, Photo Lab, Pure Raw, Film Pack, Viewpoint, and Nick Collection. Additional information is available at the link in this article in the show notes. The new On One Photo Raw 2023.1 is now officially released and available for download. See the 2023.1 sneak peek video. This will be a free update for all On One Photo Raw 2023 owners. New customers can get the $20 off intro offer. Additional information is available at the accompanying link in this article in the show notes. And that is definitely. Some cool news, a lot of new uh, modules being added to DxO's uh, software, which is definitely incredible. And I did recently download the new update for On1 Photo Raw 2023 for myself just a couple of days ago. Nikon's 10% instant discount lens promotion started in Europe. The 10% discount on Nikon lenses in Europe, I reported a while back, is now live at this offer is valid until March 6, 2023. At Amazon DE, Amazon Italy, Amazon France, and Spain, Photo Earnhardt, Photo Koch, Calumet, Wex UK. Excluded from the promotion are the following lenses. The Nikon Z 85mm F095S Noct, The Nikkor z 100 400 F45-56 VRS, the Nikkor Z400mm F2.8 TC VRS, the Nikkor Z600mm F4 TC VRS, and the Nikkor Z800mm F63 VRS. Photo Earnhardt also also offers a free version of Capture One, uh, $200 or €200 value, full license, not Nikon license, with the purchase of some Z-mount cameras. The current Nikon USA rebates can be found at Adorama, B&H Photo, Paul's Photo, and Service Photo. And now we'll head on over to Fuji Rumors and see what Patrick has for us this week. Cosina teases two more Fujifilm X-Mount lenses to come soon cosina has announced that they will showcase two fujifilm x mount prototype lenses at cp a compact lens and a super fast lens it is not specified but i wouldn't be surprised if also there were ones these ones will have electronic contacts like the other three cosina is already offering for the x mount the Voigt voight lander knocked on 23 f1.2 the Voigtlander Knockdown 35F1.2 and the Voigtlander Macro APO Ultra 35F2. And all three of those lenses are available at B&H Photo, Amazon US, and Adorama. When my old XF23mm 1.4 beats Sony's full frame and other wonderful moments, but now welcome my new XF23 1.4 R LMWR. It's never easy to let go of gear you used and loved a lot. Gear like my good old Fujinon XF23 F1.4 R is a good example. But now the time has come. I just received the new Fujinon XF23 millimeter F1.4 R and I've explained the reason why I bought it in another article, which you can find in this link in the show notes. The Magic of Making Money by Buying Gear I bought the lens at Amazon Italy here, as they had a better price than my local store, and, they're also, and they also qualified for the Fujifilm cash back. Convincing my wife of this investment went like this. One, I don't need to pay for the lens because I'm paying it with the money I made from the X-T4 sale. Two, there is a sweet deal on the new XF23 1.4. Three, buying the new XF23 1.4, I can get rid of the old XF23 and make even more money. Four, I've booked a table for two for dinner at a fancy restaurant tomorrow. Yes, only for two. It will be our first dinner without our son after two plus years. Grandma is informed, she will watch after our son. This tells us one thing. Photography is definitely an expensive hobby when you build up your system, but it gets much cheaper once you can fund new gear by selling old gear. Remember the good, but I don't let go of my good old Fujinon XF23 1.4 with a light heart, as I had many great moments with it. Let me name a few, quote, episodes beating Sony. When Andrea from Sony Alpha Rumor, or uh, yeah, Andrea became father I don't know why it's not, maybe because he's from a foreign country, I don't know. I quickly went to the hospital to meet the little, new little family member, and Andrea was there with the Sony A7R2 taking pictures, whereas I showed up with the Fujifilm XT1 and the XF23 1.4. At some point, I noticed the grandmother holding the baby next to a big window. The cloudy day was throwing a nice gentle light on them. I told her to turn slightly to get the perfect light of her old hands holding the baby, frame the shot, and click. We had the best picture of the day. Of course, Andre was of SAR took tons of images himself, but the ones he sent out via email to all his friends to present to present his daughter to the world, was an image taken with the Fujinon XF23 (laughs) 1.4. Interesting. The most important day in my life. The most important day in my life is by far the day my son was born. And on that day, I had only one lens with me, the Fujinon XF23 1.4, nothing else. And here is an image I took with it. I wanted to keep the gear simple. Don't mess with switching lenses, just one camera, one lens, and free up my mind from gear thoughts as much as possible and focus on the moment. And I knew the XF23 1.4 would be the perfect all-rounder. The most precious memory I'll ever have, the XF23 1.4 captured it. The wedding. Another key moment in my life with the XF23 1.4 was when I photographed the wedding of my best friend. Also, in this case, the XF23 1.4 turned out to be a true workhorse and and has delivered some wonderful shots. So the conclusion, these are just three moments out of many. It's a lens I truly appreciated. And if it wasn't for the fact that I own a 40 megapixel uh, Fujifilm X-T5 and hence want to take out the most of it in terms of resolution and autofocus, I would still happily stick with my old XF23 1.4. I am sure the new Fujinon XF23 1.4 RLMWR will stun me. I'll miss the focus clutch a bit, but overall, I think that the things I will enjoy of the lens are more than the things I will miss from the old one. And now, apologize, my dear readers, it's carnival here in my little 1000 soul village in South Tyrol. My family is ready to go out and celebrate, and I know which lens I will take with me to capture the day. (laughs) <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, good for you, Patrick. And I'm glad that you enjoyed your XF23. And I hope you enjoyed the new generation of that lens even more so. And now wrapping up with Sony Alpha Rumors update. Leaked Tamron 20 to 50 millimeter F2 full frame email image is a fake. I got this image from a usually good source. And I didn't double check because I was on a, in a hurry, which I shouldn't do. I thank those of you that pointed out to me that this was a fake. What uh, remains true is that Tamron has scheduled a press event on February 22nd, but I yet don't know what will be announced. To trolls, I have a 90% reliable rumor track record the past two years. Sorry if mistakes happen, but if you cannot handle those few mistakes like adults, please just leave this place and enjoy all other websites. To troll websites, trolling about my mistake while constantly copying my rumors without linking back is a sad life for real. It is what makes you is that what makes you happy in life? Wow. And I don't know. I can't agree with that because both myself and Jared Polin have pointed out numerous times that his track record is nowhere near 90 percent. More like 10 (laughs) percent. Rumor, Sony 800 millimeter f5.6 GM lens coming in 2024. As you know, I don't post all rumors I like get. I try to sum up the less reliable with my wild rumors. Roundup post. I checked a rumor I got two months ago from a news source, and I think that in that in this case, the new source might actually be spot on. He told me this many weeks before the official Sony 300mm GM development announcement. Quote, there might be a 300mm f2.8 GM and an 800mm f5.6 GM in 2023. As you obviously see, he was right on the 300mm GM, so maybe Sony will announce a new 800mm f5.6 lens sometime in 2023 that will then be available in 2024. And that is all the news and rumors for this week. To join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 317 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. I also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. Now, I did just recently release the first video for... Tioga County, Pennsylvania, as part of my Forgotten Pieces of Pennsylvania series. So you can check that out at Liam Photography on YouTube. Also, remember, my latest contest giveaway is still going on. You have 60 days left in which to get your entries in for a chance to win a Platypod Extreme Flat Tripod. All right, that's going to wrap this one up, folks. I will see you all again on Thursday.